You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Today, Friday the 3rd of June, marks 100 days since the start of the war in Ukraine. To mark this moment, I spoke to Roland Oliphant, our senior foreign correspondent, and Natalia Vasilyeva, the Telegraph's Moscow correspondent, to get a sense of their understanding of the war, its origins, their reporting on it, and how it might end. Here's our conversation. We're 100 days into this conflict. Roland and Natalia, how did we get to this? Well, if I may, we started with a massive military build-up in November. And for many months, we saw in real time Russian troops, Russian weaponry being pulled to the border with Ukraine in numbers that had led all military analysts to believe that there will be a full a full-blown invasion, which is something that we correspondents working in Russia never expected, because this is something that we thought was never in Vladimir Putin's interests. But at one moment, one night in February, February 24th, he just decided to go ahead without, with it, without any causes, Billy. And here we are, 100 days later. And what was the reaction in Russia the day after the, the day after the invasion? How were people in the streets reacting to that? I remember this day very well because I went out to do Vox Pops to talk to people on the streets. And I remember approaching and talking to something like a dozen people, maybe 10 to 12. Only two of them were confused and tended to side with Putin and said, well, I'm sure, I'm sure he has a good reason to. He has to protect people in Eastern Ukraine and the Russian-speaking part of Eastern Ukraine. But everyone else was just horrified and shell-shocked because it was already clear that it was a full-blown war. And it's clearly not what Russians expected. We saw anti-war protests that, that night for several days. But the Kremlin regime still stands. We did not see any protest to the scale that would threaten the Kremlin or any massive defections in the Russian elite, which would also signify that, that the Putin regime is about to fall. And Roland, you were in Ukraine before before the war started. What yes. was your experience then? Oh, it was kind of disbelief. So, you know, there was this huge build-up. And as, as Natasha says, the, the starting pistol was this, I think it was a Bloomberg story in kind of late November or something, um, mm. citing kind of anonymous European sources saying they'd been briefed by the Americans that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine. And I remember thinking, oh, don't be ridiculous. Come on, they've, they've been poised to invade Ukraine. I mean, a, they did it in, in 2014, but they're not going to, you know, they're not going to do a massive invasion. Where did this come from? Um, 
And then over the next several months, it built up and built up. And, and we had these warnings from, from Britain and from the White House principally, from American and British intelligence, that this was going to happen. And in Ukraine, people found it really, really difficult to, to take that on board. And I was, in, I was in the same boat. I think the same boat as Natasha. I think the same boat as many people who were kind of thought they knew a little bit about Russia and Ukraine in this conflict. We just thought it's it's not in his interests. And in Kiev, in the build-up, even in the last few weeks, it was very difficult to find anybody who took the threat seriously. Those who did, who said, look, I've got my eyes open, it's possible, they would say things like, well, all right, even if he's going to do it, we're looking at the fundamentals, like he can't actually attack Kiev, it's not going to work, they haven't got this in place, they haven't got this in place, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's safe, it's, you know, saber rattling. But as things as things got closer and closer to the 24th, it became it became clearer and clearer that, you know, the Russians weren't changing course. And the Ukrainian government was clinging to this this public kind of public relations policy of, of not causing a panic. So they didn't they didn't want to tell the public that, look, this is quite likely to happen. I, they didn't believe it or they didn't want to tell it. And it was only, I think, there was a day, a couple of days beforehand, Vladimir Putin summoned his uh, the Russian Security Council in this this extraordinary televised meeting where he essentially had um, each of the most powerful figures in his in his entourage, kind of one by one, state their own views on this to him in a kind of in a kind of almost ritualistic humiliation. It was like having to you know state your loyalty to to Don Corleone. A lot of them were were visibly kind of frightened. I mean, people like you know Sergei Naryshkin, the head of the of the foreign intelligence service or you know sergey lavrov and all, all these people kind of paraded and forced to say time's up we're going to have to take action against ukraine and then he gave this extraordinary speech the same night in which he he just he ranted and it's visibly angry man talking about how ukraine was was lenin's mistake and and we are going to decommunize ukraine which is about as which is essentially you. sounded like a declaration of war yes it, it sounded like a declaration of war and then and i and I, I was in i was watching this in kiev as was everyone in kiev and i i remember i was incredibly frightened by that point mm, i was just freaking yeah. out same thing and then, yeah yeah and then i calmed down i took a good deep breath and i thought oh well actually he didn't actually use the word declaration of war maybe it's just mm -hmm. his hot air maybe whatever maybe maybe actually there is going to be an escalation, but it's just going to be in Donbass. You know, they talk about, they recognize the Donbass republics. Maybe it'll all be there. So a lot of us mm. were clinging to the very last moment of this idea that this is just mm. too mad. It's just mm. too insane. Mm. It's not in Russia's interest. How is it in Russia's interest? And then on, you know, the morning of the 24th, everybody wakes up at four in the morning and is confounded and it's happened. So when were the moment? I mean, you you said you didn't believe it for a long time. Did you have a moment where you thought, no, actually, I can I can see it's coming? And if so, what what was that moment? It was building up. I mean, at first, I was very skeptical in in the autumn and so on, and then it built up and built up, and then I began to think, well, the Brits and the Americans they're freaked about something. They're, they're genuinely mm. freaked out. And and yes, I remember the dodgy dossier in the Iraq war, and I don't want to take anything that, you know, the British government puts out anonymously at face value. But I, I realized the West was seriously freaked. And then I was kind of at 50-50. And it was then, it was that, when I heard that Vladimir Putin that day was going to call that meeting of the Security Council, I was walking through the streets of Kiev to... Um, to try and get some dollars because we knew there might be a war and we were trying to get everything prepared. And I just had this, this crueling feeling of just creeping terror in my gut, I remember, and just feeling absolutely panicked and getting back to my hotel and watching him, um, watching this 
meeting and then that speech and I just I, I, I knew at that point it was going to be bad and yet I still wanted to convince myself maybe it will just be in Donbass maybe he won't do that and so the, 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 the absolute moment I knew it was happening was when I was woken up at four o'clock in the morning in Donbass and the invasion had begun. And just to jump in here, I think one thing that we did mention is the fact that, as we know now, very few people inside the Kremlin knew that there was going to be a war. And, for example, if you look back at public statements by Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, or other top Russian officials who publicly mocked uh, U.S. intelligence reports who made fun of, of those, um, as they call it, warmongering. And people, they just publicly, they would laugh at those assertions. And from what we know now, I think it's clear that when those people were doing that, they most likely didn't know that there was going to be a war, which, again, influenced um, our analysis. And it was it was hard to, to believe it was happening when, as we know now, only a small circle of Putin confidence, something like three, five people, knew that there was going to be a war. I mean, that's absolutely right. And the other thing to point out here is that the people who were wrong were people like us. It was, it was, it was the, the journalists who followed the Kremlin. It was, it was the political experts, the politologists who were just saying that this just isn't the Putin we know. Why is it in his interest? Mm -hmm. He's got the election coming up in 2024. It's not him. He's much more calculated. Why would he burn the house down? And the people who were right... To, to my astonishment, it was British and American intelligence were right, for one thing. But the other people who were right were the military analysts, the people who didn't know anything about kind of internal Kremlin politics and, and, and hadn't lived and breathed like, you know, Russian current affairs for the past 10 years. But they were looking at the stuff that was building up on the border and just saying, no, guys, no, this, 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 this looks like the real deal. And I just, you know, and I remember, I remember having a conversation with, with, with a very good kind of Russian expert saying, yeah, I've spoken to one of these, uh, these military guys. And he just, he just, he just doesn't know the politics though, does he? You know, I mean, it's just mm -hmm. not Putin. And I think that's how a lot of us felt because it, it did feel that Putin has just, he's just burned the house down. He's thrown away, yep. you know, 25 years of progress and construction in pursuit of a mad, mad aggressive dream, I suppose. Let's move on and talk about the first 30 days or so. There was a lightning advance to the north, to the east and in the south, and ultimately it failed. Roland and Natalia, what happened? Why, why did that fail? Well, um, if I, may, if I may start with um, not exactly a military point of view, what we, saw, what we see right now, what we see from testimony of Russian soldiers who were captured, what we see from wiretapped conversation, start with the military thinking, as we know now, differed very much from what soldiers saw on the ground. There was an expectation in the Kremlin, however outlandish it sounds now, which was the Russian troops, because it, it's, it's a lot of them, and they are entering a, entering a territory, which Kremlin would be greeting them. They had, the expectation was they would be greeted with open arms, and they would just roll into Kiev, meeting no resistance. That's why, you know, if you look at the bulletin, of military bulletin of what, what happened in the first days and weeks of the war, they were internal troops, they were riot police units that were so sent into Kiev with the idea that they would be policing the streets, something like in the first week of invasion already. So obviously the, the thinking was very flawed, the thinking proceeded from an outlandish assumption that uh, Russian troops would meet no resistance. And of course they, they did meet a lot of it and Roland is his better place to speak about it. I, I mean, I agree with that. I think, I think number one, incredibly poor intelligence, just, just, just an extraordinary failure of intelligence. Somebody 
was telling the planners in the Kremlin, which we presume, you know, Vladimir Putin and two or three of his closest confidants, mm -hmm. that there was a huge, silent majority in Ukraine who were, would, would simply welcome Russians with open arms, which was transparently mad to anybody who knows anything about Ukraine or has been here. And which was, which was one of the reasons we couldn't believe it would happen because everybody who knew anything about Ukraine knew that there would be a big fight. That this, exactly. That, that, that yes, there, there is a constituency who was slightly pro-Russian and especially in Donbass, you will find people even today who are looking forward to the Russians getting there, but they are And there were even openly, openly pro-Russian politicians here, even after the annexation Crimea. You know, you talk about Odessa, you talk about places like Nikolaev, and there was, and the Kremlin counted on those people to turn their back on the Kiev government. And it, it, a couple of mayors, they, there was a big scandal a couple of years ago that they were actually secret Russian citizens. But when the push came, came to the shelf, they did stand up for their country. They, exactly. And then this, this was, this was, so this was another puzzling thing about the build-up. I thought, this can't happen. And they must know that, because if I know that, then, you know, Russian intelligence officers on the ground, who spend a lot more time there than me, must also mm -hmm. know that. And they mm -hmm. must be fired back to Moscow. But obviously, either they weren't, or their bosses weren't, or it wasn't getting through. And then, of course, what, one of the uncertainties, I, when this went ahead, I thought, well, my God, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe actually the Russians are right, and there is this silent majority, and, and you know, like Kharkiv is just going to fall mm -hmm. like a ripe apple into the Russians' hands. I really didn't know in those first couple of days, because I thought there's no way you would go ahead with this invasion unless you knew um, that was going to happen. It's clear now that they were completely wrong about that, for whatever reason. The other thing that went wrong is... They simply didn't, they tried to do too much at once. So they tried to go on Kiev, they tried to go on Kharkiv, they had the Donbass stuff and, and they came out of the south. It was too much to do with too few troops and, and facing a determined resistance. They were never going to succeed that way. And the third thing is, it seems that the Ukrainians were given very, very good intelligence, we think by the Americans probably. So, for example, the first, the first Russian helicopter dash into Hostomel Airport outside Kiev, you know, about 50 helicopters zooming in and, and planting a bunch of paratroopers there. The idea was you seize that, you've got an airhead, you bring people in, bang, Kiev falls. The Ukrainians were waiting for them. And it turned into, I mean, it was like the Battle of Arnhem, but worse, that, you know, the Russian paratroopers didn't really stand a chance because of incredibly good intelligence the Ukrainians were getting. That's another reason they failed. And the other reason they failed, and you can almost forgive the Russians' intelligence services for this because we didn't grasp it, and I don't think Western governments grasp it actually, is that the Ukrainian army really had transformed since 2014 to a greater degree than anyone realized. Yeah. Um, really well motivated, really well led, great initiative, great fighting spirit. Nobody, Russians or Western governments, seem to really give them credit. And so th those are the factors that I think felt that disaster for Russia in the early days of the war. Within weeks then of the Russian invasion, even within days, there were reports of war crimes, of civilians being executed by soldiers, and soon mass graves were uncovered in the Kiev suburbs in Bucha. Can we talk about that? Look, looking back now, several months on, how, how, how did that happen? What I have heard from talking to Ukrainians was that people in occupied territories, when Russian soldiers would come into, would roll into villages or towns, they were genuinely surprised that locals were hostile, that locals were not greeting them with open arms, as Roland has just put it. As we know now, they were, they had very poor supplies. They were not, their commanders definitely didn't expect them 
to stay somewhere for weeks on end. Those soldiers ended up being left on the, to their own devices, apparently with very little idea to do. In many, in many cases, they ended up in those suburbs and villages when they saw that part of their units or troops in other part of, of the country would be ambushed, would be killed, entire unions would be taken out. And this is, this is what happens in, in a war like that, that uh, war crimes get committed because there is no oversight, because there is no one to tell them not to do that, because those people were getting tired, hungry, angry, also angry at Ukrainians that they were not glad to see them there. There's this um, amazing Russian political scientist, and she has a wonderful way of just describing it. She says, war is like a fast track for turning a man into a beast. And this is, this is what, what we happened. Yeah, and, I mean, I'd, yeah. Agree with a lot, I'd agree with a lot of what Natasha said. I would add, I mean, the, part of it is fear and revenge, right? So in Bucha, there was, a, there was famously a big Russian column of tanks that got absolutely wiped out. And there's, you know, there's, there's decent reporting about how the atmosphere changed after that. Um, mm -hmm. and and people knew this stuff was going i completely agree about the failure of leadership poor leadership bad officers soldiers who feel like they've been left alone there's also this is this is a troubling thing and i, I don't know enough about it but if you look at the history of the russian army's operations over the past 30 years if you, if you go down to chechnya even now and you you know you talk to people mm. and and, and just wait for the conversation to flow. And you realize the scale of the atrocities that were committed there as routine, the local people yeah. remember. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, I have the sense that, to, that there is a culture of this in the Russian army, a kind of, you're off the leash, go and do what you want. It was, this is another thing that shocked me as well. I didn't think they could do it to Ukrainians. Yeah. I didn't think yeah. that... Or they, they would, would do, do it to Ukrainians. Yeah, because if, I'm, if I may, you know, if you go back to the 90s, a... Um, Chechens by most of the Russian population were perceived as an alien ethnicities. You know, they were Muslim. They didn't look like us. And, you know, from a psychological point of view, it's easier to be violent to someone who you don't view as a human or who's very different from you. Obviously, Ukrainians don't look that differently. They don't speak a language that's too different. But it happened because war is a horrible, terrible thing. Yeah. And that's another thing. It's, it's one of the long-term consequences of this is that that bond between Russia and Ukraine is so utterly shattered now by by these kinds of actions. You know, yeah. I thought I thought they couldn't bomb Kiev. I could they they couldn't yeah. bomb Kharkiv because you know everybody's auntie Masha lives there. You know, yeah. you can't bomb auntie Masha, but they yeah. did it anyway. And then they murdered people and they raped them. I just I don't see where this relationship between these two countries is is repaired. It's just. You know, that, that is an enormous tragedy. So weeks into the war, Russian repression on internal unrest starts to ramp up and foreign reporters are suddenly under a lot of pressure. Natalia, can you tell us what, what, what happened and what happened to you? What did you have to do? Sure, but it happened not even in the weeks after the war. It happened within days. And the war was a shock. Images, uh, testimonials from people in Ukraine who are hiding in air raid shelters was a shock to me. But the repression just started to snowball. In the first five days of the war, we saw Russia's legendary independent news station taking off air. Russia's only... Uh, independent news TV channel had to shut down. These are all; these were all landmarks that, you know, in all of those years covering Russia, I thought so. Like, what would be the 
what would be the goalpost? What would be the landmarks that would really tell me that, you know, this is, this, this is when Russia is turning into a full-blown totalitarian state. And, for example, the, for example taking, taking down Echo Moskvi, the radio station, would be one of those things. It's a radio station that opened just before the fall of the Soviet Union, whose editor-in-chief is an incredibly well-connected, smart person who has managed to steer the station through all of those decades of turmoil, he has been able to, to criticize Kremlin openly on radio waves for um, for two decades. They had to shut down. And on the eighth day of the war, Russia passed what I call a war censorship law, which essentially made my work and the work of my colleagues completely impossible. Because when the war started, Russian uh, the Russian state insisted that it was not a war. They called it a special military operation. They still do. That law that they passed on the eighth day of the invasion, explicitly bars anyone from using the word war or invasion. If you use the word war to describe the war, you are in breach of a new law that's fraught with a decade in prison. And um, by the end of the second week of the war, most of the foreign correspondents, including myself, I know, fled the country. Most of the brave Russian reporters who have worked in an incredibly difficult environment all of those years, despite all of the threats and, and pressure and having to raise money, to raise funds to run independent outlets, they also had to, had to flee. Because the threat was very exp exp explicit. It wasn't about, you know, the foreign agent labels or... You know, you wait for a police search. You think, oh, what are they going to make up this time? It was, it was very explicit and, the, explicit. and the Kremlin showed that opposition to the war would not be to tolerated. And we saw this transformation to essentially a totalitarian regime just in the I mean, space of a couple of days. Let's come back to that idea later, I think. But just going, just going back to the war. So the, as Roland, as you said, the initial push, they tried to do too much too quickly. The intelligence was faulty. The Ukrainians fought incredibly hard and it resulted in a Russian retreat from Kyiv and a reconcentration of troops in the Donbass. Could you bring us up to date as to where we are now? What, what does the battlefield look like in the east? So it's spooky in the east. If you've if you you know if you had been like me following this war and like Natasha in, in 2014 it's back to all those familiar towns and those those familiar battlefields places like Kramatorsk and Slavyansk places like that I mean to give you a kind of bird's eye view there is now a front since the Russian retreat from Kiev and Kumi in, in, in the Sumy region there's now a front that kind of it kind of begins up near Kharkiv and it trails down through the Kharkiv region until it gets to the Donetsk region and then it turns east and comes into Luhansk and a civil of Donetsk and there's an acute corner and it turns again kind of southwest and it's that it forms a kind of triangle or what they call it you know, military theory a salient so on those two sides of the triangle that is where the battlefront is Russians are, are trying to close that triangle I mean it resembles one of the great battles of the first world war really in in, in the sense of shape of the battle this attempt to bite off a salient and the Russians have basically, they've, they've done what they should have done all along, basically, which is rely on their huge superiority in firepower and men. So they've brought in, you know, so much artillery, it's unbelievable. And they are just pounding and pounding and pounding on two or three or four points where they're, where they're trying to push ahead. And it's just, the Ukrainians are trying to pound back with their own artillery. And but it's, it's, it's clear that they just, the, the balance of forces on one side so that the Russians are, they fought their way into a place called Liman, um, 
they've 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 fought their way now today into civil Donetsk. They've destroyed the police column. They've come out from a place called Pastor, and all these slow but steady kind of advances, all of which are preceded by these absolutely enormous artillery barrages. We're talking about an area that you know, at its mouth, the salient's about forty miles across. You get further in, and you get to you know, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. But anywhere area. You can hear the guns. I mean, you can you can hear the the thud, the, the, the pitter patter of um, rad rockets. All of this, it's it's which makes it rather terrifying. And every day you wake up and it seems to have got a little bit closer. So right now, I mean, the next stage of this battle, um, we're talking about places like Slavyansk, which is symbolic because it's the town where the the pro-Russian kind of invasion, stroke counter-revolution, stroke insurgency began in 2014. That is going to be next. That, that is one of the cities that's going to be hit next. Bakhmut, which is the next road, the next city down the road from, from Severodonetsk and, and Kramatorsk, places like this. Essentially, the Russians are going to, they're going to take what's left of Luhansk region and they're going to move on to the Donetsk region. Natalia, you've talked about it a little bit, but would you tell us how you think uh, the war has changed Russia in the last hundred days? It's a completely different country. The expression I've been hearing all those weeks is, the Russia we know before February 24 no longer exists. This Russia has been destroyed. It has been what we used to call it a hybrid regime where free elections didn't exist, where we did have free press, but there was no free speech on state TV, where only Kremlin appointed candidates could occupy a senior post in the government. But now and again, you could have an independent mayor elected. And in a country where, by and large, Russians were allowed to do what they want in terms of their private lives, their economy, building businesses. By 2022, Russia built a global economy, uh, an economy which has been interconnected with the world. That's why all of those sanctions are so painful for for Europe and the US to implement because it's not just about hitting Russia, it's about untying those connections and those links. Like Russia has been tethered to the world in the past 30 years and those links are really hard to untangle. It's a country where you could live a comfortable middle-class life, go and get your lactose-free latte, go on a nice shopping trip in Milan. You could have a job in a nice, in a world-class modern art museum. You would have a friends abroad. And um, I'm just, the, the examples I'm giving is the examples of people I know who had to flee Russia, who saw that the life that we had was no longer possible because the uh, impact, even, in the, even the immediate impact of the invasion was that Russia is closing in. It's it's gonna get as isolationist. No one would want to deal with Russia. No one would want to sell cars to Russia or go to a modern art exhibition. And in this way, just as Roland put it a while ago, Putin put this house on fire. I mean, three three months. A lot of people I know are still shell shocked. They are waiting. Uh, contracts are on hold. People don't know what's going to happen to their jobs, to their livelihoods. Everyone is waiting. Everyone has been waiting for this war to stop. They thought it would take a week. It would take a month. Now it's 100 days. There is no end in sight. And Russia will have to build an economy from new because the, the society and the economy we had before, it no longer exists. How do both of you see this war ending? I have no idea. I think I, I can see it going on for a very, very long time at the moment because... 
both sides know perfectly well that the way this war is going to end is at the negotiation table, but you don't go to the negotiation table until you're in a position of strength and until your opponent is exhausted or you're exhausted. So in 2014, 2015, the war ended. It was frozen when the Russians came and just dealt the Ukrainians a devastating blow. And the Ukrainians had no choice but to, um, you know, sign a very punishing peace deal that that was basically politically impossible for them to implement. But that was effectively dictated by Vladimir Putin's victory on the battlefield. And the Russians will seek to do that again. And the Ukrainians are doing absolutely everything they can to deny them that. Ukraine is on the back foot at the moment, but I can't say I detect any sense of kind of fatigue. I mean, look, people, people don't like the fact there's a war on, but this is a country that is still willing to fight. So we're a long way from, from getting to that point. And it's, it's it, it's it's a real struggle, right? I think I think there's a sense in in Russia. Okay, it didn't go didn't go as well as we thought. Um, it has dragged on, but look, let's just get through summer. Let's get back to winter, and the Europeans are going to crumble because they need our gas, and they're going to force them. And and we do have more men, we do have more guns, and and we can get out of this. And eventually, maybe if we take Luhansk and Donetsk, we can declare a ceasefire and and annex Kherson and you know the, that southern stretch of coast, including Mariupol, that they've captured. Um, and, and, and then we can, we can regroup a bit and the Ukrainians are terrified of that because they think, you know, that's, that's just going to give the Russians a few years to regroup just as it did, you know, eight years after 2014 and they'll be back and they'll go for Kharkiv again. They'll go for Kiev again. The, the problem is that I think everybody knows that the, the Ukrainian war effort is kind of dependent on this Western support, this, this lend lease, this huge logistical economic pipeline from the West. If that if that pipeline delivers, if that pipeline does not kind of fall apart into half measures and things like that, I think in the long run, time is on Ukraine's side because I just don't think Russia can compete with that or ultimately win against that. But the Russians are also playing a waiting game. Both sides here, both sides in Moscow and in Kiev, they are perfectly aware that they are in a battle of will, of resolve, of grit, of don't give up yet. And both sides have got their eyes on, on Ukraine's Western allies because Russia is pretty convinced the West doesn't have that grit and that resolve. And it's beaten the rest in that game before. And the Ukrainians are frankly a little bit worried about the same thing. Yeah, I'm afraid I share Roland's pessimism. And I do think that we're in for a long haul here, which is something that we didn't expect in the first weeks of the war. Everyone was looking at Putin's speech on the victory day, thinking that this is this is the time for him to declare a victory, to come up with whatever he can and say, okay, we done, we did it. I don't know. We we took southern Ukraine. We managed to build the so-called land bridge between Crimea um, and Russia-occupied parts of Donbas. Let's stop at that. You know, it's 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 a victory for Russia. It would have helped him to save face. He would have something to show to Russians to present as a victory. He clearly decided not to do it. His uh, victory day speech was incredibly mundane, showed that he's he's completely unfazed by military losses, by um, the utter devastation that the war has done to the Russian economy, how it essentially wiped out the work and achievements of a generation of people who has built a new Russia in the past 30 years. So he's he's prepared to lose. He's prepared for the losses. But I think important is important to note on the Ukrainian side, there definitely was more room for compromise, and maybe would be much more willingness for compromise before I would say in the first month of war, 
before Bucha, before Irpin, before we saw stunning atrocities uh, perpetrated by Russian troops outside Kiev. Just on an emotional level, those things are understandably very hard for Ukrainians to swallow. That's why if you look at the most recent opinion polls, something like 80% of the population in Ukraine say that they don't want to compromise with Russia, which is understandable. On the Russian side, those atrocities are there. They are committed. There are international investigators working on the scene. Putin is is being called a Nazi criminal. He's being compared to Hitler. Everyone talks about the new Nuremberg trial. So for people like him and his uh, entourage, it's clear that there's no one going back. So they're not they're not going to back down until they completely run out of money and, and firepower. That's 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 what it looks like on the one hundred days of the war. Roland, you've been on the ground in Ukraine. Natalia, you're speaking to Russians all the time. What would you want our listeners to understand about what life on the ground is is like and life for ordinary Russians and ordinary Ukrainians? I think there is there's been a lot of good reporting about this, but there's no real real way to get your head around the the physical and emotional and and all the suffering that is being inflicted on ukraine right now and i mean i just took um i wasn't at the battle of kiev i was i was in the east during the battle of kiev you know i was kind of around kharkiv and the southern front and and places like that but i just took a took a kind of sightseeing tour really to kind of just see for myself the destruction around Irpin and butcher and stuff like that i mean it looks like stalingrad it it's it's absolutely appalling and this is happening in one country. It's, it's, there's no two sides here. Um, one country attacked another. All the destruction and the killing is happening in one country. And it is, it is absolutely gruesome, kind of what's happening. So that's, that's one thing. I mean, be under absolutely no illusion about why the Ukrainians are still fighting, because they, they seriously feel like, look, mm-hmm. you want to compromise? You want, you want us to live under this? You know, that they're trying to wipe us out, which is one thing. And the, and the other thing, it's not really, I suppose, a, a message to our, our readers and listeners, and those, I suppose, so much as the kind of, you know, there is, I think there is a, a stream of thought in Europe and in the United States that says, oh, well, you know, it's about time that the Ukrainians realize they can't win and be realistic. You remember this New York Times opinion page and stuff. And I think, you know, conversations with people who think that they just don't grasp this. They just don't grasp that. I mean, the Ukrainian people, just the public is not going to wear that. It is, it's, it's, it's a war of kind of national survival, I suppose. I think for me, the biggest... I mean, there have been so many stunning discoveries and, and surprises, all very unpleasant in the past three weeks. I think the biggest surprise for me as a reporter who thought that I understood how that country works, how Russia works, was the fact, was, was how powerful Russian propaganda was, that how, that what a grip uh, Russian state TV had on people's minds. Because as, as Roland pointed out earlier, one of the reasons we didn't believe there would be a full-scale invasion because Russia and Ukraine have been so interconnected. Pretty much everyone in Russia has anti-Masha, as, as Ron called it. And my expectation would be that as soon as Russians get calls from their uh, sisters, cousins, distant relatives in Ukraine who would tell them that, you know, we are spending a night in an air raid shelter, guess why? I thought that the immediate reaction of those Russians would be horror, outrage. But what we have seen, and that's not a one isolated case that's that's been unfortunately widespread, incredibly common, is the fact that, I don't know, a countless number of people, thousands and thousands of Ukrainians would go online and say, 
I'm calling my relatives in Russia and they tell me, no, that, that's a lie. Russia is not bombing civilians. Russia is only targeting military infrastructure. Or they would say, well, we're out here to liberate you. And it's chilling how powerful Russian state media has been, how Russian has state media has brainwashed people so much that they are now happy to believe the to believe state lies about liberation of Ukraine, about Nazis controlling Ukraine, that they prefer that, they, that they trust this more um, than what they've been told by their family members. And this is what made it possible for Russia to go on. We saw protests. The anti-war movement, obviously under a lot of pressure, you see at one man with a poster on Red Square here and there, and uh, two women coming out to the building of the Russian foreign minister, smeared in red paint to, to protest massacres in Ukraine. But the overwhelming majority of population is shocked, silent, and would rather believe lies about Nazis in Ukraine. We never expected that there would be giant protests against the Putin regime because they have made sure over the years that they have made the cost of protect protesting very high with, with police brutality, with laws against protesting. But in generally, we see a large portion of population that refuses to believe, refuses to, to ask questions about the war. And that, that's how it's been going. That's that's why Putin hasn't been able, that, that he didn't have to stop, because obviously they don't feel this pressure from the Russian population to stop. Just on, on, on what Natasha was saying about, um, you know, Ukrainians speaking to their relatives are in Russia and not being, I've had so many conversations mm -hmm. like that. I and mean, this is this is not just something, yeah. it, yeah. Is, yeah. it yeah. is a real thing. It is it yeah. is people ringing up like their cousin who is yeah. from yeah. from the same town in Ukraine and moved to Moscow a few years ago and won't believe them. And it's, it's, it's screwing with people who said, I mean, I've got a colleague actually, um, and a guy I know whose cousin is fighting the Ukrainian army. His other cousin has just has just signed a contract to go and fight in Ukraine because he needs some money. You know, and, and and you can imagine what that does to a family, right? There are lots of families who aren't speaking to each other anymore or find it difficult to speak to each other. It's not a complete, you know, it's not black and white like that. I mean, there are. I was speaking to a um, this guy who's a member of the Kharkiv City Council who was a, who represented a pro-Russian party and now he's in the Ukrainian army fighting on the front. He says, yeah, I, I speak to my relatives in Russia. And he was the first person I met who said, you know, they're, they're in shock. They, they can't believe mm -hmm. this madness is carrying on, which was interesting to me. I mean, I mean, most of the people I've spoken to, this, this thing that Natasha has described is the dominant narrative, this kind of why won't my cousin, my brother, my aunt, why won't they believe me? You know, which is, which is another speaking again. I mean, I, I, about Ukraine and Russia, the, the Ukraine, you know, a lot of Ukrainians don't like this characterization of it as a civil war. They resent the idea of this being, you know, brother nations, because that's part of the Russian propaganda, because it, it feeds into the narrative that, oh, Ukraine isn't really a different country. It's, it's part of Russia and it should be, you know, re-annexed by Moscow. But, you know, the truth is, they're incredibly close countries. They have been close countries for, you know, generations, hun hundreds of years. And even after it, the annexation of Crimea, even after the annexation of Crimea, you know, relationships carried on. So, I mean, this is this is mm. this is as mad. It's as mad to me as I said this before the war. This is one reason I couldn't say that it was as mad to me as like the RAF bombing Edinburgh or something. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just it is. And this is something I just can't get over. And I'm sure Natasha can't get over as well. I mean, Vladimir Putin has literally destroyed not only kind of, you know, modern Russia and, and post-Soviet Russia and, and everything that was built over the past 30 years. He, he's destroyed this, I don't know, this relationship going back 
many years. It was something we all took for granted. This this closeness and, and, and friendship and relatives and all of this, it's, and I can't get my head around this. You know, this is another thing like looking, looking up, looking up at the horizon over the decades and there, what has he done to the world? What, what does this part of the world look like in future? I just don't know. Mm. It is not the one we were living in. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you both very much. Just my final question. Is there anything you'd want to mention or think is important to talk about that we haven't talked about? I would just add one thing is, you know, people have been asking, people are asking now and they were asking before the war, when is the Putin regime is going to fall? When are the Russians going to get sick of, sick tired of Mr. Putin? And there were so many Russia analysts would come up with so many explanation of what would be the last drop. But obviously right now, I think it, it is important to recognize that Russia is a full-blown totalitarian state. And whenever uh, a regime change happens, it's not going to happen as a result of street protests or Russians finally rising up to topple Putin. I think that ship has sailed, that we're full, fully blown in the Iran-North Korea situation here. I think I'd agree with it. Yeah, no, I think I, think I, I, I agree with Natasha's view of that, the, 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 the Iran comparison entirely. I just don't think anyone should be under any illusions. I know that there's, you know, people get tired of the news and things like this, but, you know, Europe, us, the world, we're, we're in a, a really grim crisis and we're not out of it yet. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.